This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 425,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your offer. This week, I'm going to recommend The Party by Richard McGregor. This is a fantastic look into the Chinese Communist Party and the extent to which it both masks a lot of its influence over various sectors of Chinese society and maintains that same influence and control while maintaining a perception of social openness. McGregor's work is a little old by this point, but I think the ideas contained therein are still very interesting, and I highly recommend it. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your copy. Hello and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 323, Musui's Story. As I've mentioned before, one of my favorite things about history is recovering the individual human experiences of the past, at least as much as it's possible to do so. Finding these moments of human connection to the past is wonderfully, well, humanizing, and I just enjoy it so much. When I think back to the early moments in my history education which stuck with me, it's pretty uniformly one of those moments of connection across time. For example, that's what really spoke to me about texts like The Pillow Book of Seishonagon or As I Crossed a Bridge of Dreams. It's really remarkable to read something and connect with a person who lived a thousand years ago. Though the span of time involved is not quite as dramatic, this is what I really love about the subject we're going to talk about today, too. It's the story of a samurai late in the Edo period and his rather dramatic life, and like some of the other stuff we've done on the Edo period, it does a good job of taking the samurai, who were often perceived very monolithically in a more modern context, and giving some nuance to that perception. Our subject today is one Katsukokichi, who by the traditional reckoning lived in less than interesting times. He was born in 1802 and died in 1850, just three years before the arrival of Commodore Perry. So he was around for the waning years of the Tokugawa shogunate, but not the actual action that brought it down. But that's okay, because what's interesting about Katsukokichi is more the drama of his individual life, which was recorded in an autobiography he commissioned towards the end of his life which, first of all, means we do need to view the stories here with a bit of suspicion, because Katsukokichi is our only source for them, but it also means that we're going to get down to more of a ground-level view of samurai life, and that should be interesting. So let's talk a little bit about who this guy is, and that in turn might be a little confusing, but just bear with me here. Katsukokichi was born into a small samurai family, the Otani clan, a minor samurai family with an income of 100 koku per year. That's a pretty bad income for a samurai family with social obligations to maintain, and as a result, the family was in pretty dire financial straits. That financial pressure, in turn, helps explain one of the big early developments of Katsukokichi's life. By the tender age of seven, he was adopted away to another family. For an impoverished samurai family with sons to spare, and Katsukokichi was the third son of the Otani family, this was a pretty good way to lower household expenses. 
To put it simply, if unsentimentally, it's one less mouth to feed. For the Otanis in particular, their third son seemed pretty redundant. Their eldest was on his way to becoming an impressive Confucian scholar, Otani Hikoshiro is his name if you want to look him up, and their middle child was also pretty talented, so they had two good options for an heir, no real need for a third. So in this case, the boy was adopted over to the Katsu family, which is how his name changed from Otani to Katsu. Now this actually required a little legal chicanery. The reason that families like the Katsu family adopted sons in this manner was to ensure they had an heir to take over the family. The Katsus had no sons, only a daughter, and would thus have that daughter marry the adopted son, take the family name, and ensure the continuity of the Katsu clan. This sort of marriage adoption was fairly standard practice for families with no sons, and continues today, though it is less common. It was actually how Katsukokichi's own biological father had become part of the Otani clan. Kokichi's biological grandfather was a moneylender who had essentially auctioned off the boy to the heirless Otani clan. Strictly speaking, though, this form of adoption is supposed to be for adults. Kids cannot do it. In particular, by the laws of the shogun, an adoptee for a samurai family had to have gone through their genpuku ceremony, marking their legal transition to adulthood at the age of 17 by the Japanese rendering, which is usually closer to 16 by modern Western counting. Katsukokichi, though, was 7 when he was adopted, which is far too young to be legally married into the Katsu family as an adult and adopted. However, the family was also desperately in need of an heir. The daughter Kokichi was marrying, Nobuko, had lost both her parents when she was young, and the family was currently headed by her elderly grandfather, for obvious reasons that arrangement was not very sustainable, and the family needed an heir as soon as possible. So they did what any self-respecting person would do in this situation, they fudged the rules. Specifically, they staged a full Genpuku ceremony for Katsukokichi, despite the fact that he was, again, 7 at this time, and then just claimed he was 17 on all the paperwork, which, in a time before birth certificates, well, I guess who's gonna waste the time trying to call you on that? Because, astonishingly enough, it worked. So that's how Katsukokichi became, well, Katsukokichi, heir to the Katsu family and the great hope for the future as the new family heir. He continued to live with his biological family part-time, though. This was part of the arrangement for the Katsu family taking the boy off their hands, so it's not like he just left that family behind altogether. Instead, things get kind of confusing because he sort of has two families. And it's important to note that this family had role, by the way, it's pretty important. This is not just some empty title. Up until 1945, the legal unit of Japanese society wasn't really the individual. It was the family unit directed by the eldest male of the direct family line, the family head. Family heads were responsible for monitoring and controlling their family members, ensuring they followed the law, and contributed productively to society. They were, in essence, managers of the whole family unit. It was a lot of responsibility. To prepare Katsukokichi for this responsibility, the family arranged for him to have the best education possible. They sent him to a school called the Yushima Seido, starting at the age of 13. Now, the Yushima Seido was a combination school and Confucian temple. One of the common practices at schools of Confucian learning was to include ritual veneration of Confucius and his disciples as a part of the curriculum. 
the Yushima Seido was specifically founded by one of the most prestigious Confucian scholars in Japan, a man named Hayashi Razan, who had been the first Confucian scholar in Japanese history to score a gig advising a major political leader, the first four Tokugawa shoguns, actually. It's a bit of an oversimplification, but if you were to credit any one person with putting Confucianism on the map for Japan, I think Hayashi Razan would be the natural choice. The family head of the Hayashi family still served as the advisor to the shogun in Katsukokichi's day, and the Hayashi family still ran the Yushima Seido, which Hayashi Razan had founded in the 1630s to train the best and brightest minds in Japan in Confucian philosophy. We've actually talked about this school before, when we talked about the doctor Shibata Shuzo, who spent his life studying in Edo. His final teacher was one of the instructors at the Yushima Seido. That teacher's prestige was such that it got Shibata his ultimate job, working at the Institute for the Study of Barbarian Books. So, basically, if you're looking to put together the equivalent of the Ivy League for Edo period Japan in terms of institutional prestige, well, first, the Ivy League is a sports league and in my humble opinion does more to further the cause of institutional snobbery than intellectual enlightenment, but second, the Yushima Seido would probably be on that list. Unfortunately for the Katsu family, and especially for young Kokichi, it turned out he did not have the mind of a great Confucian scholar like his eldest biological brother did. In fact, he proved to be a pretty mediocre student. Here's Kokichi's own description of the experience. Quote, I began by studying the Chinese classic The Greater Learning with Kokimi no Kichi and Sano Gunzaemon, officials in charge of the school dormitory. I hated studying, and every day slipped out through the fence and into the Sakura riding ground where I spent hours riding horses. At most, I learned to read five or six pages of the greater learning. The two teachers soon sent word they didn't want me, which suited me just fine. It wasn't just teachers like Sano and Koki that were annoyed by all of this. When Katsu's biological family found out about it, they essentially placed him under house arrest for several months to try and straighten him back out. This will be the first of several times this happens. It didn't work. The only thing it led to in this case was a series of intense personality conflicts between Katsu Kokichi and his adoptive and biological families as he chafed under their attempts to force him to be a good son. The only thing that seems to have really brought the young boy any joy at all were physical pursuits. We've already talked about his penchant for skipping school to go horseback riding, something he seems to have really loved. He also had an intense interest in unarmed combat. This too led him into trouble. He had something of a reputation for getting into fights with the other boys in the neighborhood, using the martial skills he'd acquired from his samurai education, and at one point he was swarmed by a mob of neighborhood kids and, according to Kokichi, a few of their parents, who just laid him out for all the trouble he caused. Given these difficult circumstances, it's probably not the most surprising thing in the world that ultimately Katsukokichi would try to escape them. When he was 14 by the traditional Japanese rendering, this would be 1815 in the Western calendar, he tried to run away from home. His escape from family life proved wildly unsuccessful. With only a few gold Ryo coins he'd stolen from his family, he hoped to make his way to Kyoto and build a new life for himself, but he had no idea how to travel, and in particular was unaware that you needed a permit to clear the border checkpoints between different domains. Fortunately, 
The young lad fell in with some traveling merchants who asked him where he was going and offered to help get him through the checkpoints if he would spot them some cash and they would show him a good place to stay, a nearby inn, where they could all stay together since they were all headed the same way. I imagine the kind-hearted among you are thinking, aw, isn't it nice that this young, naive child found some kind-hearted folks on the road to help him, and so you will be as surprised as Katsukokichi was to find out that when he woke up the next morning, his swords, his money, and even his clothes were all stolen. His benefactors had simply pegged him as an easy mark and robbed him blind in his sleep. Kokichi was able to get back on his feet by doing some begging in the streets and by defrauding a local Shinto priest named Ryudayu, conning the priest by saying that he was a pilgrim on his way to Ise Shrine. The priest offered him food, a night's lodging, and a large sum of copper coins to replace what had been stolen. Kokichi also briefly stayed with the magistrate of Fuchu, having come to the magistrate's attention after he critiqued some of the local samurai for their horseback riding and then got into a fistfight with them. The magistrate assumed, correctly, that this hot-headed young boy was either from a samurai family or just very dumb and took him in. Kokichi continued in this manner for quite a while. He made it as far as Yokaiji, actually, which is about three-fourths of the way to Kyoto. However, he eventually abandoned his plans to get to the old capital of Japan because he didn't really have a plan beyond just try to get a job once I get there, and was eventually convinced by some of his companions on the road that this was just not going to work out the way you hope it is, buddy. In the end, Kokichi was forced to return home, though along the way, while sleeping outside, he somehow managed to fall in his sleep and smash his own testicles, which became infected and would eventually require medical treatment, and in an age before antibiotics, fighting that infection would confine him to his home for the next two years. Ultimately, coming home with a bruised ego and very sore testicles, Katsukokichi was forgiven for his transgressions despite some grumbling among the Katsu family that we really need to find a better heir. After mending from his testicular adventures, and by the way, I chose very deliberately not to read the descriptions of the infection from Katsukokichi's autobiography, so you're welcome, the young man, who was now 16 by the Japanese rendering, decided to get a job. As a low-ranking samurai from a family with a small stipend, he was entitled to apply for work via something called the Kobushin-gumi system, a sort of temporary job pool for low-rank samurai where they could put their names in in order to be summoned by the system's commissioners when an appropriate job was available. Here, too, Katsukokichi got off to a rough start. His education had been such a flop he couldn't even write the characters for his own name to register for the Kobushin-gumi and had to have someone else do it for him. At the same time, the commissioner he was assigned in the Kobushin-gumi system, a guy named Ishikawa, who seemed willing to forgive his history of troublemaking, so hey, things are looking up. But this kid just had a nose for trouble. Before too long, he was back in it again. This time it was some of the ladies of negotiable affection of the Edo period. An acquaintance introduced him to the world of the Yoshiwara, the licensed pleasure quarters of Edo, and before long he'd blown his entire stipend on time with some of those ladies. A solution presented itself, though. Around this time, his eldest biological brother, the upstanding Confucian scholar, was serving as commissioner for one of the shogun's domains and returned home with 7,000 gold ryo in tax money, 
money he charged his youngest brother to guard while he was out on an official errand. Well, you can probably guess how this went. Long story short, when said brother came home, about 200 of those gold rio were mysteriously missing, replaced by stones so that the trunk of cash wouldn't rattle suspiciously when it moved. It was clear to anyone with a modicum of sense that Kokichi had stolen the cash. One family servant even admitted to seeing him do it, but his biological father intervened to protect him on the grounds that, what's the point of ruining his future over a bit of cash? So the family ignored the theft, and Kokichi blew all the money on cheap sex, or, well, I guess it wasn't that cheap, within a month and a half, before turning his attention to moneylenders and advances on his samurai stipend to get more. The record of Katsukokichi's youth is full of events like this. For example, at one point, he'll go to a festival dedicated to Hachiman, the god of war, with a friend of his, a retainer of his cousin by the name of Genbei, and do so specifically with the intent of getting into a fight to prove his toughness. When Kokichi and Genbei find a likely-looking bunch of young men who seem like they'll rise to the bait, one of Kokichi's friends spits in their faces and from there things pretty much go as you'd expect. Honestly, his youth is full of stories like this. There's another where Kokichi and his friends, who are all students of the same school of Jikishinkage swordsmanship, go and challenge a member of the rival Ito school to a test match with bamboo swords. All of them beat the hell out of this Ito school counterpart, and to add insult to injury, Kokichi rips down the guy's nameplate, the marker that this person belongs to this school, on the way out the door. Swordsmanship, by the way, was another thing that seems to have really brought Kokichi joy. He spends a lot of time in his autobiography talking about the fights he got into, the high-quality swords he was given by teachers or acquired by other, more dubious means. In one case, he seized a suspicious person on the road to Edo and confiscated his sword and then never investigated the matter further. One thing that rarely rates a mention here... During this time, Kokichi will begin having children with his wife, who remember he married in order to get adopted, and specifically he will have a son, named Rintaro, born in 1823. Eventually, Kokichi will decide, again, to run away from home, because on the spur of the moment, he's feeling pretty bored with his life. He'll pawn some of his possessions for cash, grab a set of sparring gear, and set out on a journey, bluffing his way past the first checkpoint he encounters, by claiming he's on a pilgrimage to famous schools of swordsmanship to improve his technique, and also by lying to one of the guards by claiming he's part of a lord's family instead of a low-ranking samurai. He will continue in this way for quite some time, at one point bluffing a provincial administrator who tells him all the official inns on the maid road are barred to individuals traveling alone. Katsu will claim to be a retainer of a major lord, entrusted with prayers to be delivered to an important shrine. This will cause the administrator to panic, thinking he's offended the retainer of one of the most powerful people in Japan. Not only will Katsu get access to the inn, the administrator will also bribe him to forget the whole thing ever happened. The whole thing will only come to an end when one of Katsu's cousins, apparently one of the few people in the family he actually liked, finds him and urges him to come home. The cousin had been chosen, by the way, because the family was worried that Katsu Kokichi would stab anyone else sent to bring him back. Presumably, Kokichi assumed he'd be welcomed home, or at least forgiven for coming back voluntarily, but that's not how it went down. 
Instead, when he got home, his biological father had him thrown in an iron cage in the middle of the family home. This must have been quite a cage. Kokichi describes it as being three tatami mats in size, which would be a bit less than five square meters or 50 square feet. Katsu Kokichi will spend three years confined to this cage with no guests and only minimal contact with the outside world, pretty much limited to letters from his father telling him to get his act together. On the plus side, this was the moment when he finally took the time to learn how to read and write, so I guess that's one way to promote literacy. He will only be let out after promising to reform his ways, and after being told by his eldest brother, who was the one with the best job in the family, that he was now cut off. Once again, Kokichi will turn back to the Kobushin Gumi and attempt to convince a commissioner to give him work, and he will be surprisingly successful, as his strategy, confess to his misdeeds in somewhat edited form and throw himself at the mercy of the powerful by claiming he's been reformed, will somehow actually work. This commissioner will agree to take him on, but the thing about the Kobushin Gumi system was that it only worked when there was, well, work. The dire financial straits of the shogunate by this point in its history meant that it was not exactly engaged in the kind of large-scale projects that require hiring up the equivalent of temporary staff, so Kokichi was able to secure a patron, but that patron could not give him any jobs. Now, it is to Katsu Kokichi's credit, sort of, that he maybe kind of began to turn his life around around this point. He will finally find another job giving swordsmanship lessons, and he will open up a business selling swords, armor, and other samurai bits and bobs, and while he'll struggle at first with this, he will eventually start bringing in money for his household. Perhaps more importantly, he will get some decent advice from a family friend to work on improving your reputation, do something nice for a person every time they treat you badly. Kokichi will start trying this out and will actually win himself a lot of friends. Even his adoptive grandmother, who hates him and believes him to be a no-good, worthless bum, which, I mean, not necessarily wrong there, will start treating him better. And it seems for a time things really are getting better for him. One small incident where he gets into a drunken fight with a co-worker, and then slams 13 cups of sake in a party to try and patch things up, before passing out outside, aside. The rest of Katsu Kokichi's record of his adulthood is pretty similar to this. Minor incidents that are somewhat juicy in terms of the scandal he gets into with his neighbors, but eventually things will fall apart once again, shortly after his biological father dies of a heart attack. In the wake of his father's passing, Katsu Kokichi will return to his old ways, visiting the Yoshiwara frequently and blowing huge volumes of cash on evenings of pleasure while also making acquaintances with the sorts of rough-and-ready troublemaking types that hang out in an entire district full of sex workers, so not the kind of people an upstanding samurai necessarily wants to associate with. Around this time, Kokichi will have another huge blow-up in his family thanks to a letter he will write to one of his former students. That student had just gotten an appointment in a provincial magistrate's office, and Kokichi will give him a bunch of advice about how to behave, including how to skim a bit of money off the top for himself. Now, it's worth noting that while officially embezzling money as an official was not condoned, certainly, it was also not uncommon. 
a certain degree of graft was just kind of expected. But of course, not all of us who engage in a little corruption on the side have brothers who are stuffy moralistic Confucian scholars, and this letter will make it back to the family and to that brother and oh boy will he be mad. Katsu Kokichi will actually get into a sword fight with his middle brother and end up flat out lying to the face of his eldest brother, claiming the letter is a forgery, and that in turn will lead to a bunch of recriminations within the family about how Kokichi is a worthless bum who's been blowing all his money in the Yoshiwara, and what is he even good for, and before long the eldest brother says, that's enough, I've had it with this, we're getting the cage back out. While re-caged, Kokichi, in a fit of recrimination, will decide to give up his family headship and retire from the Katsu family in favor of his young son Rintaro, who by the Japanese count is 15. The year this happened was 1838. By our count, Kokichi would have been 36. Katsu Kokichi's account of his retired life is honestly not that different from his time as family head. He describes going out to gambling dens with friends, despite prohibitions on gambling among samurai, taking folks out for parties in the Yoshiwara, where he retains a ferocious reputation, and my personal favorite, helping out his destitute samurai landlord by going to the landlord's fief to collect emergency levies of taxes, and then when the peasants refuse to pay up, publicly threatening to commit suicide right in the middle of their village until they give him his money. Which is not a fundraising approach I've personally ever tried, but I suppose it probably would work. The tail end of Katsukokichi's autobiography is a reflection on his life. The section begins, quote, Although I indulged in every manner of folly and nonsense in my lifetime, heaven seems not to have punished me yet. Here I am, 42, sound of health and without a scratch on my body. Some of my friends were beaten to death, others vanished without a trace or suffered one fate or another. I must have been born under a lucky star, the way I did whatever I pleased. No other samurai with such a low stipend spent money as I did, and how I blustered and swaggered about with a trail of followers at my beck and call. The text then ends with a call for his descendants to learn from his folly. Quote, Unable to distinguish right from wrong, I took my excesses as the behavior of heroes and brave men. In everything I was misguided, and I will never know how much anguish I caused my relatives, parents, wife, and children. Even more reprehensible, I behaved disloyally to my lord and master the shogun, and with utmost defiance to my superiors. My past conduct truly fills me with horror. Let my children, their children, and their children's children read this record carefully and savor its meaning. So be it. And thus, the text ends. Eight years after it was written, Katsukokichi would die of unknown causes, though, frankly, if I had to guess, probably some form of long-term alcohol poisoning. He would have been 48 by the Western counting, so I guess his lucky star finally ran out. After his retirement, Katsukokichi had taken a new personal name, as was common at the time, Musui, which roughly translates as Drunk on Dreams, which is pretty poetic for a guy who was illiterate until he was in his 20s. Thus, his autobiography is known to history as Musui Dokugen, roughly Musui's monologue. In English, it's available as Musui's story, having been translated by the fantastic Teruko Craig, 
I highly recommend it. If you're wondering whether his children actually listened to Kokichi's warnings, well, his son certainly did. Since, of course, nothing your parents do is ever cool, that's just the natural order of things, Katsu Rintaro rebelled against his father by being a total straight-laced model samurai in every respect. Katsu Rintaro proved to be able and loyal and shot up the ranks of the Tokugawa shogunate. He's actually known to history by one of his pen names, Katsu Kaishu, and he would end up as commander of the shogun's navy and would be the one in charge of the city of Edo, who negotiated its surrender to the new imperial regime. He would go on, actually, to be one of the founding figures of the Imperial Japanese Navy, and just generally has a pretty good reputation, historically speaking, so pretty different legacy from his father, though I will never be able to look at Katsu Kaishu the same way again after reading his father's long description of his son being bitten in the testicles by a wild dog and the months of infection that followed, which, by the way, what is it with this family and testicles? Oh my god, would someone get these people some athletic cups? So, what can we learn from all of this, other than the importance of proper protective wear? Well, to start things off, I do think Katsu Kokichi is really interesting, primarily because he's such a good antidote to the image of the samurai as just duty-bound and obsessed with personal honor. And yes, I know we spent a lot of time pushing back against that on this podcast, but I really do think it's important for us to understand just how much those were aspirational ideals and how much they were not how actual samurai lived day to day. Katsu Kokichi was very much a samurai in terms of social status, but the way he behaved was frankly pretty recognizable from a modern standpoint. He liked fun, he liked doing things he enjoyed, and when he was young, he disliked arbitrary sources of authority telling him he couldn't do those things because there were other things he was supposed to do instead. In that sense, he just comes off as very human. Even his autobiography, which ends on this note of, oh, I'm so sorry for the things I did, has undertones that make me question just how sorry he really was. Quotes like, I must have been born under a lucky star the way I did whatever I pleased, no other samurai with such a stipend spent money as I did, and how I blustered and swaggered about with a trail of followers at my beck and call, well, that could be recrimination for his past misdeeds. Or it could be read as bragging, nobody else has ever partied as hard as I did, you guys. It is, of course, impossible for us to know what being a samurai was really like. You can't recover the culture of a past because you can't live in the past. You can only get a sense of the feel of it, for lack of a better term, from documents like this one. And the feel you get of what being a samurai was from this document is, well, not what I imagine a lot of people would expect. Which leads to the natural question of just how many samurai were like Katsukokichi and how many were not. How many just mouthed all the stuff about loyalty and honor and were in it to party hard? And that too is an impossible question to answer, but we have no reason to believe rebels like Kokichi were exceptional, so I would guess there were a lot more people at least sympathetic to his outlook among the samurai class than one might imagine. And of course, Beyond all this, there's the remarkable humanity of Katsu Kokichi. Warts and all, and let's be honest, he comes off as kind of an asshole. The portrait of Katsu Kokichi presented here is remarkably human. It's not stylized or cleaned up so he seems nice. 
Of course, there's a chance that some of the actions in here are made up. I have a hard time believing that Katsu Kokichi was as much of a badass fighter as he seemed to think he was. But the feel of it is authentic in terms of the emotions involved, and that is both interesting and impressive that he was so candid about the life that he chose to lead. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. For more on this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit your ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at isaacmeyer.net, that's I-S-A-A-C-M-U-Y-E-R.net, or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time for the start of a two-part episode on the Tajin scandal, one of the most famous scandals of 30s Japan.